Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, CMMC is headed to the DFARS. Which would be the move that really makes CMMC law of the land, real deal. Contracting officers would have the authority to put it into a contract. The next move to pave over the valley of death in DOD. They have to award these program of record type contracts where essentially we're talking about the next generation software primes. And maybe we've been thinking about legacy IT all wrong. I don't think age is necessarily the most important factor in in defining legacy. It's Friday, February 4th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program's Pentagon piece is moving. Jackson Barnett's writing about it at fedscoop.com. Jackson, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Where's it moving from and where's it moving to? Thanks for having me, Francis. So it is going from acquisition and sustainment to the CIO's office. It's really kind of a lateral shift. Uh, It was started and overseen by the chief information security officer for ANS and is now going to the chief information security officer's office within the office of the CIO. And along with this is the elimination of that first CISO position that was in ANS. You write, moving CMMC from acquisition and sustainment to the CIO's office was first suggested during a top-down review of CMMC in the summer of 2021. What was the reason in that review that the reviewer thought it made sense to make that change? Well, from the start, there's always been a tension in CMMC in that it's an acquisition-related program, but it's really about cybersecurity. So the CIO kind of has statutory authority to oversee cybersecurity policy and ensuring that you know the IT systems of the department are secure. But ANS is in charge of you know all the acquisition and uh, policy related to that. So uh, it had fallen in both organizations to some degree. Um, and as the program became more cybersecurity focused, more focused on kind of what actual controls were going to be in it, uh, people that were doing the review were thinking that uh, the CIO, which has the kind of the technical knowledge and the workforce that is focused on cybersecurity, they're the people to kind of take charge. Uh, Forgive me if I'm a bit cynical, but I note that uh, the reduction in scope, as you uh, write about it in this story, happened recently for CMMC, CMMC 2.0 includes only three tiers of security rather than five. Now this move these are sometimes in Washington the kinds of moves that happen before something either disappears or just kind of falls asleep. Any reason to believe that that's the case? Because the vendor community, I know there are a lot of people in the vendor community that would love for CMMC to disappear. Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's certainly a long list of people that uh, would be happy to see the new requirements go away. The people who I've spoken with who are close to the program and who are working on it and or work with it closely as well, do not foresee that as a, as a likelihood, although it's a possibility. But the CIO did say in their statement and in the memo that they anticipate moving out on the rulemaking process to codify CMMC into the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations, which would be the move that really makes CMMC law of the land, real deal. Contracting officers would have the authority to put it into a contract that would make those requirements for contractors uh, have real weight. 
All right, you're also reporting on a list of 14 critical technology areas that Heidi Hsu, the chief technology officer at the Pentagon, will focus on moving from research to capabilities. That to me is is huge because this is kind of combine that with another effort of hers that you reported on earlier in the week, which is to address this valley of death issue that the Pentagon's been struggling with for a long time. It strikes me that this is really an effort to make a lot of progress in a short period of time on that valley of death problem, Jackson. Do you think I'm putting the pieces together correctly? Yeah, and, and this is, is is kind of fortuitous to be be talking about this now because this is a problem that bridges between acquisition and sustainment and research and engineering. So research and engineering kind of takes up that first wall of the valley of death where they have the money and resources to give contractors, be they big contractors or small contractors, the resources to do that initial innovation and that initial work. But that is not the type of contract they need to be able to have a sustainable, viable federal business. So acquisition and sustainment needs to pick up the the slack on that end. So with her new priorities, really what she's communicating to industry, this is the areas that the department needs capability and is willing to put investment dollars behind. That connection between ANS and R&E is exactly the connection that a guy came on my television show and said was a good reason when they were talking about splitting the offices to not do it because those organizations should continue to be combined. That mm-hmm. guy was the last AT&L, Frank Kendall, who's now the secretary of the Air Force. So we're seeing the residual influence of mm-hmm. that decision on this valley of death issue that that, that split has caused. Yeah. Kendall was the last one, and and he, you know, was definitely outspoken when it came to the the connection between research, engineering, acquisition, technology, logistics, all of those things. Um, and what Shu's latest announcement is is also communicating to industry is that she's saying that cooperation is kind of the operative word that is going to make a lot of these things real. She wants to cooperate with academia with the private sector, with innovative startups, with other government organizations. And uh, tellingly, she even wrote in her memo that she is willing to cooperate with competitors. Jackson Barnett, great insight as always. Great reporting. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. You can read Jackson's stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. IT Mod Week's less than a month away now. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events all over D.C. with lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department will connect more with small companies to help them fight the valley of death. The chief technology officer of the Pentagon, Heidi Shoes, says she wants to, quote, pave over the valley of death or at least build a bridge. Nick Sinai is senior advisor and venture partner at Insight Venture Partners. He's former deputy chief technology officer of the United States. Nick, I bring this up because as I read that article, I thought, I don't hear much about the valley of death for civilian agencies. Hear about it in the Pentagon all the time, and I don't hear about it in civilian agencies. I came to you to say, have you heard of this? And your answer to me was what, Nick? Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Francis. Um, so the, the Valley of Death is more of a DOD phenomenon because we're talking more about specialized mission capabilities, right? So we're talking uh, about companies that are focused on national security and defense uh, um, exclusively or, or what we call dual use. And so uh, it is, is much more of a 
collaboration uh, with the national security apparatus uh, about, a, about a capability that is only going to be used uh, uh, in defense and national security. And so, so there's just a different calculus there. And, and what the Defense Department, uh, tip, you know, it has a very uh, prescribed way of working with the defense industrial base. And we have these next generation companies, many of them venture backed, uh, that, that get some R&D money from the Defense Department. So you can think of the great work that AFWorks does, for example, uh, using cyber money. Uh, but then there's this valley of death between when they actually get an operational contract or even a large, what we call program of record. And it's th that, that particular thing that the Defense Department is focused on uh, doesn't exist as much in the federal civilian side because you don't have as many companies that are uh, really focused on a um, custom product, not a service, but a custom product in, in, in kind of federal civilian mission delivery. So there's two things then that I'll take away from that that I think are both positive based on what I've seen over the last 5, 10, maybe even 15 years of following federal IT. One is that means the civilian agencies have moved far away from waterfall projects and they're doing things iteratively uh, on a much more regular basis than before. And the other is that even in the iterative projects that they're still doing, they're doing far less uh, custom projects than they have before and they're buying more off the shelf. Am I reading too much into this or am I on the right track, do you think, Nick? I think there's a grain of truth there. You still can do waterfall or big custom projects in federal civilian. You're just going to do them with the traditional large systems integrators and primes, right? And so the, 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 the types of product companies that are participating in the federal civilian ecosystem are mostly uh, those that are selling commercial products. And so whether it's a, uh, a DevOps tool, whether it's a cybersecurity tool, whether it's a, a, um, a customer experience tool, a survey tool, or, or employee productivity, an HR app, you know, these tend to be products that, you know, Walmart, Bank of America, uh, Facebook, uh, or a mid-sized enterprise would use too. And so what we're talking about are uh, enterprise software, uh, vertical or soft, vertical or, or horizontal products um, that are participating in the, the federal civilian and, and defense ecosystem too. And so we've traditionally invested, uh, Insight Partners has traditionally invested in, in, in a number of those companies. Um, and and that, that has been a very Im important market segment as a growth lever, as companies uh, uh, go public and, 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 and before that. Um, there still is custom stuff in federal civilian. It just tends to be with the uh, um, traditional uh, primes rather than things that have, have maybe some hardware in them. I think that's one of the other things is, is the Defense Department. Department. We're not just talking software. We're also talking uh, embedded or, or actual hardware in some of these uh, weapons programs. All right. You keep causing me to think things that are good, I think. And so that's one of the reasons I love talking to you. The thing that I'm thinking is good coming out of what you just described is that means we have the people in government who are able to oversee, manage, select those projects, too. They know what they're doing about these uh, kind of new ways of doing things that can actually get the job done. That's a that's a good thing, isn't it? It is. And we, we are absolutely seeing that that talent in um, the Defense Department and in the federal civilian Agencies, we need more of it, frankly. Um, and and on the defense department side, 
you have a number of what's called PEOs, these program executive offices, right, that are set up. And they are traditionally the, the um, organizations that will buy an F-35, right? And so how do you think about buying the next generation of defense software, right? We're investors in rebellion defense, and that's a PEO buy traditionally, but that's something that they start two years ahead of actually buying a capability, right? And so that's to, to the, the DOD CTO's point, that's something we have to think about that valley of death uh, because when we want more next generation venture-backed software companies to really uh, address mission needs uh, um, that the PEOs need. So we need to stop buying certain big platforms in the defense department and, and, and start buying newer venture-backed. And we've been seeing some really great uh, announcements in the last few weeks, right? We've seen, seen things with with Andrel and Shield AI, and so there's been a number of these next generation uh, vendors that that have been winning some some uh, contracts, uh, but we need to see more of it. Frankly, what drives more of that, Nick? Well, I think it's it's who is in leadership, uh, not just at the very senior leadership, but also who who um, is in charge in these in these various uh, program offices. Uh, I think it is making the hard decisions about uh, you know do we focus on the number of, of, of ships? Do we focus on, on, on the exquisite platforms? Um, it's also this question of, uh, are we going to buy commercial capability versus exquisite defense capability, right? So we're, we're investors in, in Hawkeye 360 and Leo Labs. These are two companies that provide really important commercial uh, space capabilities. And so traditionally the defense department uh, and the intelligence community would would uh, contract and spend billions of dollars in a very exquisite classified program. And now we have this capability, uh, these, these two sets of capabilities uh, that not only can be provided to the Defense Department, but also can be provided to NOAA and NASA and SpaceX and kind of commercial space industry as well. All right. Uh, what do you see on the horizon? What, where do you see this going next, either in a positive or negative way? What happens to really drive success or what happens to, to the, the challenges present themselves? Yeah, I think the, there, there's a real challenge. Uh, if, if we can stay with the Defense Department, uh, um, it's not enough to, to give R&D funding and it's not enough to, to, to make a, a full warrant. If they really want the participation of the the venture community and the growth community to to you know invest real dollars and scaling dollars in, into these into these companies, then they have to award these program of record type contracts, where essentially we're talking about the next generation software primes um, that are, are are not the traditional defense primes, and that that is uh, scary to uh, uh, some some folks in, inside the defense department. It also means they have to continue to attack, and they, they are, they need to continue to attack the bureaucratic challenges around the authority to operate, around facilities clearance and security clearance, and all of that kind of friction uh, um, is challenging for next generation companies that you know ha- have, um, they have a need for speed, right? And so the, oh, well, this is gonna take us three years to get this kind of clearance and this kind of authority and those kinds of things. Uh, that doesn't help us from a mission and a national security perspective, right? Uh, and it certainly doesn't help this next generation set of, of companies. Nick Sinai, thanks very much. Always great to talk to you. Thank you, Francis.
You can read more about the Valley of Death at the Pentagon in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The next iteration of the Fatara scorecard will likely look different than the most recent version. The Government Accountability Office calls those scorecards, quote, effective tools for monitoring important IT issues. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues, GAO. She testified about the Fatara scorecard recently and previously. Carol, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What was the main message you wanted to convey to the committee about where the scorecard is and where you think it should go? Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Francis. Uh, the, the main message or the takeaway from the hearing is that, you know, the scorecard has been an incredibly effective oversight tool um, for agencies and, and for, um, for Congress to track the implementation of the TARA over, you know, the past few years. It's, it's been an outstanding tool. But at this point in time, um, given the evolution of IT and the, the challenges that we're facing now, the scorecard also needs to evolve with that. And so, um, so, the, so the hearing was really focused around talking about the next steps of how we might evolve the scorecard to ensure that it continues to stay effective. There were a lot of talk about in the community after the latest iteration of the scorecard came out about how well agencies are doing, how good the scores are. And it strikes me, that's kind of the point, but not really the point, right? The point is to measure what agencies are doing and drive their behavior toward the things that are the desirable outcomes. That might not always mean that agencies do well, and that's okay, right, Carol? Exactly, exactly. So when you take a look at the history of the scorecard right now, when you you look at it, uh, agencies have straight A's on data centers, and you know that wasn't always the case. And so, uh, so agencies' um, behaviors and results were driven large. Um, a, a large portion of that was because of the scorecard and those grades. They were very focused on that, and so they've done a tremendous amount of work to get those savings. Since 2010, uh, about 6,800 data centers have been closed, and we've achieved about 6.6 .6 billion in savings. That's a huge accomplishment. You know, we have, I think squeeze as much juice as we can out of that initiative. And now it's time to close that category and focus on the new emerging areas like cybersecurity, for example. So you kind of answered my next question, which was once we get to a point where everybody's doing well on something, do we want to stop measuring that or keep doing it on, on some level to make sure that agencies don't backslide? And I take that you're confident that on data center optimization, at least, we can put that one to rest and move on. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think that, for example, with data centers, we can take a look at modernization more broadly and what's the next step. So looking at the implementation of the cloud smart initiative as, as one example of what we may do to um to evolve the scorecard. Um, but I also think that, you know, there are still areas where agent, we should continue to keep a pulse check on where agencies are going to ensure that they are not backsliding. So I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a balance that, that, uh, that Congress will, will need to, to take as they have those discussions about evolving the scorecard. The other one where I think the scorecards had a, a fair amount of success is driving the reporting structure for agencies. You know, I remember when your predecessor, Dave Pounder, was on this beat, and we were looking at half or more of the agencies who didn't report to the agency head or the deputy, and now it's uh, 16 yes, three no's, and and five uh, P's, 
And so that is a dramatic difference. Again, driving the, what the both the spirit and the letter of the Fatar legislation wanted, which is a good outcome as far as prioritizing information technology in the agencies, right? Absolutely. And I, I, I think that um, Congress's leadership and their consistency um, in holding those Fatar scorecard hearings along with um, issuing those grades and those um, really held the agencies accountable and I think was a tremendous, had a tremendous impact on agencies and changing those structures. But there's still quite a bit of work that needs to be done um, in ensuring that agencies and, or excuse me, CIOs are, are, are involved in reviewing the billions of dollars in IT acquisitions. Um, we still continue to have recommendations that are open in that area. And that might be something that as we evolve the scorecard, we, we continue to keep a pulse check on that because that's a critical area where I, I still think that there's um, work that needs to be done to enhance that CIO authority. It wouldn't be a conversation with somebody from GAO if that person didn't say at some point more needs to be done in a particular area, Carol. I tease you because I appreciate the work. One area where there does remain uh, a lot to be done is the network's transition. Not a lot of success there. Uh, 15 agencies got Fs. How do we determine, and not particularly regarding EIS, how do we determine if we're measuring the right things on the scorecards or if we're measuring them in the right way? Well, that's a really great question. Um, and and a lot of a lot of what's on the scorecard um, in large part has to do with the data that is available as well as data that can be publicly shared. So for example, in the area of cybersecurity, that cyber grade that you see on the scorecard is an incomplete grade. It doesn't give you the whole picture of of where the agency is at with regard to cyber, because there's just work that we've done and also things that are just sensitive in nature that we don't want um, included in the in the grade to, to make them vulnerable to attacks. And so that's something that, again, um, the discussions that we will have with OMB as well as with Congress in, in how we work towards changing the scorecard, uh, data availability will be, um, and as well as, the, the sensitivity of that data um, that we release, that that's going to be front and center to the conversation. Uh, your fellow witness, Suzette Kent, was on the program not long ago talking about the fact that the data on which agencies are graded on the scorecard has to be publicly available data. And I asked her a question that I'll also ask you. Is there data that's not publicly available that maybe should become publicly available so agencies can be graded on that data on the scorecard moving forward? I believe that it, it does exist. I know that OMB and GSA are currently working towards upgrading the dashboard um, and, and they've got some new elements, is my understanding, of data that, that, that will be published. So I think, you know, once we see the results of that, um, there may be some opportunities where we can um, include different types of areas on the scorecard that should be measured uh, because they are priorities for the administration as well as for Congress. You mentioned the cyber area of the scorecard, and I note on the actual scorecard graph itself, right underneath cyber, it says the word FISMA. Will we grade agencies differently on the FATARA scorecard if some of the FISMA reform efforts that are happening in Congress now become law? Does that, I mean, is that a de facto assumption that I should I make? I think that's a fair, fair assumption to make. In addition to that, I think there are also areas um, that, 
that aren't included in FISMA that we need to include as part of the cyber grade. So IT supply chain is one example, um, whether agencies are well positioned in their supply chain risk management processes. Um, and I, I use that example and, and I actually liken it back to software licenses where we put that on, or Congress put that on the scorecard. Um, and very quickly within a few years, um, the agencies went from two A's to, to 24 A's. And, and so we'd like to see kind of that same result in the supply chain area as well, where agencies really um, take make a concerted effort to change those F's into A's. And that will also dramatically strengthen their posture as it relates to cyber. Any other categories that uh, you would like to see included that we haven't talked about so far, Carol? Yeah, IT legacy. I mean, that's a huge area. And that goes hand in hand with cyber because, you know, obviously securing these these archaic systems. And and when we talk about zero trust and that recent executive order that came out, it's it's incredibly complex to implement zero trust in an environment that that is aging. And so um, we we have to take, it just makes it even more important for us to focus on legacy. And so what I, I, I think what, what we'd like to, to see happen is include a category on there that tracks um, the progress agencies are, are making in decommissioning the most critical or archaic systems. So does everybody define legacy the same way though, Carol? Because I had a conversation with a CIO recently who said, yeah, I have, I think it was three systems that are more than 25 years old, but they're not connected to anything else and they work. So there's, it's hard in some cases for agencies to justify a big investment or any investment given the resource situation that we're in to transition off a system like that. Is that, is that a good reason or is there, do we not just automatically grade legacy by its age? Yeah, I, I don't think age is necessarily the most important factor in in defining legacy. I, I think a lot of conversations need to happen with the agencies and the CIOs um, and having their input into what are the most critical legacy systems that they need um, decommissioned and and maybe use those as as the metric for gauging progress over time. Um, what else should we look for as the 14th iteration of the scorecard comes out? Maybe not even something that you think uh, should change, but that is something that the people who are being graded should start to think about today. Well, I think that they'll, um, it, it, continuing to focus on the categories that are in existence right now, with, re, with the exception of data centers, I mean, I think incremental development, ensuring risk transparency, um, and, and, and really, you know, focusing on portfolio stat savings, those are still very important initiatives. I, I think those are most likely going to probably stay on the scorecard in some form. It may be something broader like the banner of IT modernization, or those categories may continue to, to, to stay there. But but um, ensuring that agencies still continue those, um, those fundamental areas is important because that's also, you know, a, a, you know fundamental core uh, parts of FITARA as well. So we want to make sure agencies don't forget about those and just focus on these emerging areas like EIS, like cyber. All right. Quick final thought, Carol. Um, one of the great things about the remote work environment is you get kind of an insight into people's lives. you got a guitar behind you there. What's the story about the guitar? Oh, that's my husband's guitar. He's, he's a, 
Um, he's a very good guitar player. He, he hasn't had a lot of time to do that um, because we've got two young kids running around. But our hope is um, um, he'll get back into that. And we also have a piano. I don't know if you can see there, but our, our goal is to have the, the family band. That's pretty cool. Carol Harris of the Government <laughs> Accountability Office. Thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Francis. You can read more about the Fatara Scorecard and find a link to Carol's testimony in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Have a great weekend. The Daily Scoop podcast is back on Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.